Welcome to another Gas Giants. I'm Tom, that's Gav, and we're going to talk about uh, a Robert Fripp album from 1979. This was his first solo album. It's called Exposure. And it's sort of like a proxy and a stand-in, um, I guess. The motivation came that I, I, was, I was remembering how, when I was young, just out of school, I wasn't in the university yet, but around about the age of 17 or thereabouts, I went off to do something like an apprenticeship for one year before going to university, studying engineering. Mm. And during this time, I was, I was, uh, I, I bought music when I had money. If I bought music, it was on cassette. And a couple of the ones that I bought were from, I think, a very small record shop in one of the tube stations in London. And, you know, having been interested in King Crimson over the years, and this was already after Discipline had been released, so sort of like a renewed interest as well as having managed Mm. to get my hands on some older King Crimson albums. I just pulled a Robert Fripp cassette off the shelf and, and took a risk on it. And the album was Let the Power Fall. Which is where I would have kind of liked to have done this podcast. But, well, it wasn't really reissued at all until uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh And it's only available on CD. And and, and it's kind of a pain in the ass to get, actually. You can't get it on Mm. streaming. So I didn't want to do that. So And and there was another album uh, that I I bought roughly the same way uh, called The League of Gentlemen. Two together were uh, during that first year. Um, you know, this was me being a, a mobile, mm-hmm. a small mobile unit. I'm not sure I was intelligent at that point, <laughs> but you know, I had a Walkman, right? As as we did, and that meant you could, you know, you're on public transport, you're on the train, you're on the tube or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and you can listen to this music. And I was astonished, and I think that looking back now on all these years, what, 40 years later, probably let the power fall and everything that followed from it in my explorations with Robert Fripp's music has probably influenced my own guitar, sorry, my own music making more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So I thought we should so, do something um, about it. We should we should try to put this in a time frame. First of all, we'll put it in a time frame with you. So uh, Discipline is 1981. Had yep. you heard that before Let yes. the Power Fall? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yes, so had I. Yeah. And it's very interesting that we both heard it independently from each other. Yeah, well, I've been was, very impressed by it. It was a pretty big deal, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Well, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you mean, a big deal? It wasn't in the charts. It wasn't on the radio. No, but a lot of things weren't, you know. I mean, there was album yeah, rock back true. then where, you know, people of a certain, people who are into album rock knew about 
stuff that that teeny boppers had never heard of and and they they all kind of knew about and king crimson was one of the important bands and if you you know this 60s and 70s music of those uh that stuff if you've heard of Jimi hendrix you've heard of king crimson right Hmm. well maybe not everybody today has so we should uh we should try to put it into some kind of framework here so, uh, King Crimson had started in about uh, 68, 69? Sorry, 69. 69. 69, yes. Yeah. And the, the first ever concert had been supporting the Rolling Stones no. at that... No. Yeah. No. Nope. Hyde Park. Nope. That wasn't their first. Uh, no, they had begun... Uh, they had become performing in... Uh, they'd done a whole number of concert, concerts uh, starting about four months prior to that. Oh, okay. Um, so, they... Uh, uh, they were already reasonably well practiced as a band in front of audiences, and then uh, the Rolling Stones, this Hyde Park concert, yeah. was w- super important, of course, for for King Crimson. But I mean, the Rolling Stones had been out of commission for a while. This was around the time of um, uh, uh, of performance, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Although. <clears throat> what had really happened, uh, the reason why that concert was going on in Hyde Park was that they Brian new, Jones had just died. And they got a new guitarist that they were trotting out. Yeah. And uh, so that was the, this is a concert where uh, Jagger reads, uh, I think, Milton Paradise Lost at the start of the, the, the show and lets, lets thousands of butterflies free. Huh. And that's that, to Brian Jones. Yeah, yeah, you can find that online. And uh, but uh, but of course, uh, important to us is that King Crimson had opened for them. Yeah, and there's an estimated half a million people there because the concert is free. Mm-hmm. That's an enormous audience. Yeah, it's is mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, and and it's told the uh, there were a lot of Americans in the audience. So basically, King Crimson went from 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 zero to speed of light in in one yeah. gig. Yeah. Right, uh, and they were immediately super important as a uh, you know as as one of the world's big rock groups. And they they bring out the first album, The Court of the Crimson King, yeah, which is still selling briskly to this day. Yeah, and um, so what happens then? They uh, they seem to have they did a lot of work really. Yeah, yeah. they put they went a lot of it. material out. Well, can you mean you're talking about the albums subsequently? Yeah. Well, we can go. We there's there's a part of the story that I think's worth talking about here, which is the, I, I the story of the first tour, which was, okay. I can't. Well, it ended up in America, and they were they were a big hit in America, and then at the end of the American tour, King Crimson fell apart. Uh-huh. Two of its members basically announced they didn't want to have it, they didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, could we? Uh, what's what's the date here? Same, still 1969. <laughs> oh, it okay. lasted. Uh, it lasted a matter of months, and it was basically too much for him. Um, for yeah. some of them, anyway. Greg Lake was, um, <clears throat> I don't know, a bit weird. Let's say, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, the uh, record company was administering drugs to three of them. Fripp refused. Um, and uh, and the the whole thing was um, sort of terrifying and repulsive to Fripp at the same time as being a vehicle for some of the most amazing experiences of his life. Mm-hmm. They were 
um, you get this a bit from the albums, but nothing quite like as much as you get from listening to the live stuff. They did all. They used a lot of improvisation. These the the musicians yeah. were very good, uh, so they could improvise successfully. And I think this is a, one of the for me one of the keys for understanding uh, the enigma of Fripp because he's such a weird, contradictory kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, is to imagine at that young age being enormously successful and having these musical experiences which involve a, a collective group improvisation in front of real audiences and that that being a, a truly magical experience for the young Fripp and probably for a lot of other mm. people involved as well, including in the audience. And in a sense, what we see throughout the rest of Fripp's career is mm-hmm. various attempts to try and approach the same, not the same, but to, to various attempts to approach how do we uh, let the magic back into the room again. Exactly. What do, yeah. what do you do? And uh, a big part of this is actually uh, getting the audience to uh, participate as intelligent listeners. Yeah. Well, that's it. That certainly is, has been uh, in his later career uh, a big yeah. part of it. Uh, but Yeah, it but becomes when, more and more and more of a sort of a concern as he goes on, really, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. So, so King Crimson um, back then, so what you might call King Crimson 1, uh, you oh. know, with the, uh, from the original album, the original tour, uh, that, sort of, that closed. And then Fripp spent a few years with a rotating sort of a variety of, uh, of musicians involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, made some less than impressive records, or let's say uh, some curate's eggs. Um, yeah, the, yes, then, that's that's uh, that's well put. Um, I mean, I find yeah, Wake of Poseidon. Yeah, uh, Islands has has its moments. Some, has its moments. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lark's tongues in aspic is well. Now amazing. we're getting to the later. The later part. Ah, yes. So, Sorry, I'm getting ahead of you. So during King Crimson Two, there's a there's a there's one. I mean, the later band, the the last band of King Crimson Two, that's already got uh, Bill Bruford in it and mm-hmm. Boz Burrell playing bass and, and singing and Mel Collins on the on mm. the sax. I sax, actually yeah. like that band a lot. I thought they were great, mm. and that was largely based on the album Earthbound. Earthbound, uh, yeah, yeah, which has got. Which has got a couple of really ripping tracks. It's got some, again another hidden miss kind of album, but it's got some amazing stuff on and a lot of improvisation. Um, yes, and a really ferocious sound, really targeted yeah. live sound, uh, which I like better than the studio sound. And then we've got the three albums from the uh, uh, from the fi- from King Crimson version three, um, yeah. which uh, you know um, uh, if I can run with Starless. Um, Stones, yes. uh, larks, and larks tongues in ars- in aspic, and uh, and red, and red, red, yeah, which was the, which was at that point a trio, mm. and those are pretty good. I'm gonna step out here and say, honestly, that whole body of the the sort of like the official albums uh-huh. are sort of they're they're all kind of mixed. They're all flawed. And and that's basically because King Crimson wasn't really a good studio band, and it wasn't really what Fripp was interested in. And it's not, and it's not. It wasn't only yeah. him and the band. They were really more interested in live. 
<clears throat> of course, uh, Red is not entirely a studio album. True, same is true for Starless. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, uh, that's, uh, Starless and Red seem to have been uh, uh, sort of put together. Uh, the tracks seem to have been recorded, and then it seems to have been decided later which went on which album, in a yeah. way. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but I, I I have a special place in my heart for for Red as well. Yeah. Now uh, because yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I I think it works really really well as an album, and I love the fact that there's one live piece of free improvisation on. Now, if you like that, um, the one of the things that's been really nice that since um, Fripp started Discipline Global Mobile, which is basically his record label. Uh-huh. Uh they put out a a number of or a huge number a vast number of live recordings uh since then and one of them is called the great deceiver oh. and i think it's a four cd set in total and it includes that entire providence gig that's got the, oh, the track that you're right. interested in yes. uh, as well as a number of others and it's great <laughs> it's really stunning yeah. um one of the things that I, I stumbled across actually was doing research for this was a um if I, I cast my net fairly wide, I found a, a B side of a single mm-hmm. called Groon. Yes. Yeah. Which is it just sounds like uh straight up free jazz. Yes, it does. Yeah. Groon is on all the anthologies. That's a oh, yeah. that's a favourite of Fripps, apparently. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's on all the anthologies, and uh, it's it's uh, there. Are, it's on a couple of albums, and there's a really really long version of it on on Earthbound, uh, which is ah, very very okay. cool. Uh, ah. ha- more than half of it, I think, is drum solo. Uh, huh. so, <laughs> oh well, if you're into that kind of thing, which you might be. Uh, but yeah, Grun's a, you know, a nice example of that, and it it's and the the fact that that Fripp's so fond of it. Is, is making a clear point. And when, and when Fripp put out, and which is a really smart move, actually, um, in, I think, 75, a, a two-LP anthology called A Young Person's Guide to King Crimson. To King, King Crimson, yes. Uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man is pointedly not on that album, and yeah. Grun is. Interesting. Well, yeah, I wanted to come, uh, come back to this because... Um, yeah, so <clears throat> the the uh, red is is finished, and um, I think the the uh, also in between that and the young person's guide to King Crimson comes a, a live album called USA. That's right. Yeah, and this is the point at which uh, at which basically King Crimson stops again, and. Uh, in a way that it kind of looks like it's maybe not going to start up ever again. Right. And the interesting thing is, if you listen to uh, USA, the last track on USA is a live version of, of Schizoid Man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, it's, uh, it's an absolutely uh, ferocious version. All the, all the vocals are, are horribly distorted. You get to, the, get to the end of it, there's applause, and the applause is cut off viciously yeah. right in the middle. Yeah. And it's the sound of a door slamming, basically. Yeah. We're out. And uh, I think it 
has a lot to do with Fripp's relation to relationship to that kind of audience. Yes. Yeah, I think the 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 audience relation. I mean, he's spoken about that, in fact, uh, yeah. that during the uh, during the early years, the King Crimson. Let's call it the first four years. Mm. I mean, actually, I I think the chronology is a little different from what you'd said. The I think that basically, as a as a touring band, they'd ended before they started recording Red, and then and and with the with the with Red being mm. completed, that was the end of King Crimson. Yeah, at that point. Um, so. I could be wrong about that. But yes, um, Fripp yeah. has talked about how if you've got a group of musicians who can together produce something that's different from what any of them could have done on their own, mm-hmm. that what you've got is a, is a combination that's able to generate music that would otherwise not have been possible except in that combination then Mm. you've got a reason to go out and present it to the world and so that's that's happened a lot of times and a lot of people have had the experience including you and i gav in the band Mm. of doing that and and gosh isn't that amazing you do it yeah but he's explained also that it's it's a limited resource you can only get so far with a particular combination of people and still have something new to say um, and if you keep mm-hmm. trying to do it beyond that that reserve, that capacity, then what you're instead of sort of producing producing this novelty, you're uh, you're really just kind of you're going out there with a commercial need. We've got an audience that needs something, and you're going to have to create something yeah, just to provided. meet that need. Yeah, and uh, I was I was thinking also of the. <clears throat> the show we did a long time ago about uh, about Gong mm-hmm. and David Allen saying that he didn't want to play to an audience of more than 2,400 people because yeah. if it got any bigger than that, you couldn't look everybody in the eye. Right, yeah. And, and Fripp certainly did complain about it. I mean, things were getting absolutely ridiculous in the 70s. Uh, mm. Uh, I mean, he was certainly right about that. I think he's kind of gone back on this uh, on, on this mm. point later, you know, in his career, um, and and certainly has performed in front of very large audiences later in mm. his. Uh, yeah, but yes, no, I mean, things in the seventies were getting completely stupid. Yeah, and um, I think the uh, also the the it's, he's maybe uh played in front of you know huge audiences in the future but the whole nature of what he was doing and how it was being presented meant that that audience was very different that's true yes no what would the you know 70s heavy rock um audiences would have been very very different from a better yeah. educated and actually more mature uh yes. king crimson or robert fripp audience or or Completely. guitar craft or whatever it was later so, we've we managed to get him up to uh, the point where uh, King Crimson stops. Right. Um, must have been quite confusing for uh, for for the business side because he was this band that was uh, that was pumping out albums and filling stadiums, and they suddenly stop. And as, as Fripp <laughs> described it, he, they were sort of poised to become the biggest thing, the biggest rock group in the world at that point. Yeah. And uh, and and he disbanded. He said, "No, I'm, I've got to yeah. stop this." And 
wise move, but uh, it, he oh. had he had said that he had read uh, J.G. Bennett's. <laughs> okay, I can probably edit this sound out. Thanks. Okay, it's the much of this. <laughs> we'll take a break. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he wrote extensively about this stuff in the notes that accompanied The Young Person's Guide to King Crimson, not an album I mm. ever bought. Uh, so I can't remember if I actually read this. The story's been told quite often, and there's a version of it here in Eric Tam's book. By the way, I got an email from Eric Tam. I, I thanked him for it. Did book. you really? Yeah. Uh, listen, we're going to put a, a link to Eric Tam's book on the, uh, on the, on the Substack page. It's well worth... Reading, yeah, it's very interesting. Very well done, and yeah. I and I'm I'm appreciative for a lot of things in here, but uh, for for bothering to give us a a, a relatively concise introduction to Gurdjieff uh, and Bennett, mm. and I uh, thanks for that. It's been extremely difficult to make any sense of of those those guys until yeah. I had read this. So what um, what was this the name of this place where he went off? Uh, well, this I institute for quote, further education. I've got a little quote for you here uh, from mm -hmm. a, an interview with Alan Jones in The Melody Maker uh, talking yeah. about uh, the, uh, the breakup of King Crimson. He said that, uh, and these are the words of, um, of Fripp, I think, I had a glimpse of something. The top of my head blew off. And he's referring here to reading Bennett uh, while mm. he was on tour with... Um, with, with Crimson. That's the easiest way of describing it. And for a period of three to six months, it was impossible for me to function. My ego went. I lost my ego for three months. We were recording Red, and Bill Bruford would say, Bob, what do you think? And I'd say, well. And inside I'd be thinking, how can I know anything? Who am yeah. I to express an opinion? And I'd say, whatever you think, Bill. Yes, whatever you like. It took me three to six months before a particular kind of Fripp personality grew back to the degree that I could participate in normal day-to-day -day business of hustle. Yeah. And um, he, he talks about uh, also a period in his life in, in a later interview, he talks about suddenly uh, arriving at this conclusion that he doesn't exist. Yes, he's <laughs> said a um, lot of things like um, that. Interestingly, of course... What he calls that realization is the exposure. I didn't know that bit. Yeah, which yeah. is which you know, which is uh, which is the title of this album. That yeah, we're, we're working our way towards. <laughs> we might get there one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so yes. So he spent. Uh, so at the once once he decided, you know, f fully decided to wrap up King Crimson, uh, he spent. Um, about a year, he had. He figured he had about uh, enough money in the bank to support him for about three years if he was careful. Hmm. Uh, so he spent about a year wrapping up uh, business, and hmm. then ten months uh, at Bennett's Sherborne House. That was the uh, the International hmm. Academy for Continuous Education, which is a, a retreat with about a hundred people in this big house, and was yeah. it sounds absolutely awful. Yes, it does. Well, just <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's got it's got some meditation in it. It's got some 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 teaching, but it's mostly just chores and repairs and yeah, uh, and and being very cold. The place was unheated, and it was uh, and it operated from October through till July or something like that. 
just it just sounds terrible but uh yeah. but but fripp says it uh um you know it was tremendously important for me and he gained a lot from it um and anyway that story kind of picks up a little bit later and then uh the next year uh he's sort of like slowly kind of deciding whether or not he's going to get back into music but during this time he had well so he had done no pussy footing with uh Brian, <laughs> with Eno, Brian Eno in 72 so that was while King Crimson is still going on. He, uh, oh. Brian Eno was already in the U.S. at that point, I think. Uh -huh. um, and so Brian Eno had figured out the tape machine delay system that could be used for building up uh, these uh, repeating patterns of music. Uh -huh. And got Fripp to come along to it and said, well, here, here's how it works. Let's plug you in and, and see what you can do. And then they recorded the first half of... Uh, no pussy fitting in the next half an hour. That's that's wow. that's how easily Fripp took to it. Um, yeah, and there was also Evening Star, which I think was seventy five. I got mm -hmm. that right. Yeah, it uh, it just precedes uh, the it just precedes exposure. Oh, it was it was considerably later then. I've got yeah. it right here actually. Let's just go and pick it up. Oh, ba -ba 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 -ba. No pussy, evening star. Uh, 75, it says here. Yeah, yes, but in terms of actual uh, releases. You mean the order of things? Yes. Yeah, with his name on it, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so he ended up moving to New York himself and getting involved in the, uh, the very interesting uh, music scene that was uh, just going on there at the time, uh, where mm. we had the... The punk rockers and the and the new wave stuff, all happening. He was quite uh, he was quite busy with with Debbie Harry. And, yeah. and now, Tommy. isn't that? Hold on, just back up a minute. Isn't that quite amazing that he managed to fit into that? Um, as somebody who who'd come from the proggiest of prog rock <laughs> bands, in this manner of speaking, yes, but also no. He was the most improv of the uh, uh, of the. Of, and and he'd already dis uh, you know disavowed prog at that point, uh, and was refashioning himself as a uh, mm -hmm. as a as a dapper modern man. Uh, yeah. It is a bit. It is a bit. Yes. It is. It's, it's. I. I. You know. Looked at from the outside, I. I find that very impressive that he was. You know, these guys were even prepared to talk to him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, if you, you know, it, th this is kind of the the whole. NME exclusion principle, as I've named it. Yeah, right? true. You know? And and I wonder if that wasn't that that that, that political uh, theory wasn't sort of like a convenient story that was attached to things uh, after they had actually gotten started. Hmm. That's, that could be. Yeah, I mean that's certainly one theory that was put forward in a in a rather scholarly article that I didn't quite finish reading rather recently. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a it's a very convenient thing to it was certainly was and actually still is for a lot of people uh, to to shit all over prog for its um, mm. yeah. you know for its not really understanding any of the forms that it was dealing with and for its uh, bad taste and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But from the other point of view, it's it you know Sturgeon's law applies, right? 90% yeah. of everything is crap. 90% of punk rock mm. was crap. 90% of, yeah. uh, 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 of new wave pop music was crap. Mm. 
But um, uh, yeah, it 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 is also interesting that uh, the the next projects that he was involved in were uh, there was quite a lot of of stuff as a producer. Yeah. Which would also have kind of been a logical step. I mean, lots of people had gone from being in a band and then decide either the band had finished or they decided that they'd had enough yeah. and then they'd got behind the mixing desk. Right. One way or another. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but the, but playing the guitar also wasn't going to leave him alone either. Was it? No, no, this came back. I mean, the, 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 the story with Peter Gabriel was that, I can't. Well, yeah, he he'd gotten he'd gotten connected with Peter Gabriel somehow. I can't remember that part of the story. But Peter Gabriel invited him to come along on the production of his first album. Mm. That's the one with a car on it. And Robert stipulated, well, on condition that if after three days uh, mm. I don't want to go, I can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Gabriel agreed to that, and Robert Frenter went along. This was in Toronto. They were doing the the album and after three days robert fripp said i'm this is this is bad i don't like it but (laughs) he decided to stay anyway because he wasn't willing to leave his friends in that situation Ah, Uh, he he thought it was a horrible time on that on that record but he just wasn't really ready to leave his his the friends he had there with with those Mm. people and let them be ravaged by by you know the commercial record industry uh, without his I don't know assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so his hand is not quite so heavy on that album as on the Peter Gabriel two album, uh, where it is quite apparent. Uh, you know you can hear him play on I think mm. at least one of the tracks, and the and the mix is entirely different. Uh, Fripp likes a much more natural style of album. Actually, Eric Tam comments there that um, that Peter Gabriel's kind of better for the grand studio production um, than than the uh, the more natural style, style uh, the more in your face uh, acoustic natural yeah. style of Fripp. But yeah, well, uh, and what was the other one? Daryl Hall. Yeah, he made an Daryl Hall. <laughs> he made My an al- word. Yeah, he made an album with Daryl Hall called Sacred Songs. So Daryl Hall, an album that is. As yeah, well. it's very good. Yeah, it is extremely good. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, you, you should, everybody should go and listen to that because it really is. <coughs> it's uh, it's really not what you're expecting. Yeah, this is a selection of of uh, of quite uh, quite sort of tuneful pop songs, which suddenly start chasing you around the house. <laughs> It, there's there's some very weird moments on it, yeah, for sure. Yes, <laughs> and you get you get lots of you suddenly get these blocks of of absolutely uh, identifiable uh, Daryl Hall uh, vocal harmonies, yep. which you recognise from all the Hall the Notes stuff. Yeah, and uh, then uh, then suddenly they get a very bad tempered fripping. <laughs> <laughs> well, but some of the some of the backings are very uh, very friendly as well, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not all <laughs> it's not all no pussy footing around. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, 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 but it, yeah, it's fun because you you have this you have this notion of Hall and Oates as being like quintessential mm. commercial pop music. Um, yeah, and uh, and no, actually, Daryl Hall's a very good, very good singer, and and quite capable of something else. But yeah, it was so it, it was so different that the that the uh, record company just completely refused to put it out. 
So there it yeah. was. It was finished, and it was years before uh, it got released. I think it was finished in 77, and they didn't put it out until about 1980 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 So there were those projects, and like I said, he uh, and he did a... Um, the the first and amazing track that kind of blew the top of my head off when I first heard mm. it. My sister was a Talking Heads fan, mm. uh, and quite right too. And yeah. uh, she had a she had a copy of uh, Fear of Music. Uh-huh. The first track on that is E Zimbra, and and that's yeah. that's, and that's Fripp guitar all over. It's just it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he's so he's do producer stuff like you said, and uh, contributor on stuff, and of course, with David uh, David Bowie. Yes, he was on Heroes. That was seventy seven, wasn't it? Yes, that was. Yeah, yeah. and then a bit later, the uh, I'll, scare I'll stick just for the sake of it. Although uh, probably everybody's already seen it. There's a there's a very good interview with Tony Visconti on youtube where he talks about about how the whole track got put together and it, he talks about fripp quite a bit in that yeah it's a, it's about 14 minutes long or something so i'll just stick that on the sub stack yeah it's got a little is that the one where he demonstrates the uh, the individual parts and how they are put together yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um much later um in like in 85 the bbc made a, a film a half hour film about robert fripp and Oh, yeah. This is when he was doing the duos with Andy Summers. Uh, also, after the fourth version of King Crimson had wrapped up, he commented there how the experience of working on Heroes was was so different for him, and he loved it because it was it was a situation where he was he was allowed to be free. He didn't have to be responsible for the musical situation. He was just given. You know, here you are, you're a guitarist, plug in, play something. Yeah. And, you know, every, every time that he's worked with King Crimson or any other of these situations, most of the time he's not, he's not treated like that. He's, he's, um, he's not given that freedom or, they, or just being looked after, you know. He's got to look after the band. He's responsible for mm. making everything work. You know? mm. So <clears throat> the point is that what, uh, what came out of all of this exposure to not so much rock as pop music and pop mm. songs yeah was um <clears throat> an attempt to examine that through his own particular lens which was exposure yes yes so uh, i don't know how much this makes sense but he said he had originally intended this to be part of a trilogy with the um sacred songs album and and peter gabriel mm-hmm. too yeah I don't really quite feel how that adds up. I like your story. I like your version better. It's yeah. like a, it's his, it's his re-entry into the 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 world of commercial music with a, with an album, uh, you know, yeah. under his own name. It's the first thing that's clearly under his own name. I know, been all the yeah. other stuff he'd done was 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 uh, most you know, the name was definitely subdued relative mm-hmm. to this. So I mean. From his point of view, this is an important point because he was, like for five years, he was effectively the boss of King Crimson. Not that he would ever accept that description. And he's kind of cashing in on all of that, all that fame. I mean, that rock star status. This is Mm -hmm. now, all right, we're going to go and uh, we're going to go and use some of that, that capital that had been built up over those years. And, uh, Mm -hmm. 
And, and so, you know, the, the name Robert Fripp is very closely associated with King Crimson, so there it goes. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, one of the first tracks on the album, which is, hold on, I want to get, I want to get it absolutely right mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Uh, yes, You Burn Me Up, I'm a Cigarette. Hilarious. Yeah, but you could <laughs> honestly see that on Top of the Pops. Yes. In 1979. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> or you could have seen that on Top of the Pops in 1973. Or even, I don't know, even mm, earlier. Yeah, well, yeah. But I, I, I don't know, seven, uh, late 70s, early 80s. I, I, yes, certainly. No, you, could, uh, you could almost imagine it on AM radio in, in the States. I mean, what kind of a chord progression is this? It's, a, it's one of the simplest forms of blues, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hilarious. But I mean, in a way, that could have been the '60s music, couldn't it? I suppose so. Yeah, this is one of the one of the complete conundrums on the album. By the way, the all of the all of the tracks on this album were originally recorded with Daryl Hall on vocals. That's right. Yes, yeah. and, and then the record company had RCA bit. Yeah, yeah. Daryl Hall's record company wouldn't allow it, <clears throat> so they negotiated that down to he can appear on two tracks, uh, mm-hmm. which he does, and then uh, Fripp had to go and re-record the vocals on a number of these. Um, so that's Pe- that's Peter Hamill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and boy, does he give it everything on this album. <laughs> yeah, really. Yes. Yeah. So that, yeah, I, I know. That's, that's such a weird pop, uh, pop intro on this album. Yeah, the album is, an, is a curious collection. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. A, a number, of, like two, in various places, it makes me laugh. It just seems so absurd. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, my first. Because I, I I didn't know it, um, my first uh, first time through, I thought that this sounded like, uh, you know, probably he was he was working in various different projects, and he maybe got a day's studio time, and he put something together or worked on a track that he'd already started somewhere else. And it sounded like a sort of rag bag of, of various sketches that he'd been working up for a while and a sort of uh, uh, an album of loose ends. It's only listening to it a couple of times through that I realised what a what a carefully crafted collection of songs it actually is. You think? Because I'm, yeah. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure which of those it really is. Yeah, it's kind of got a, f- a foot in both camps, but, uh, but yeah. it... It's true that uh, that you don't get that impression the first time through, and then especially the next from few times too through, you actually do. From a modern perspective, I think that's especially true. I think back back then it was not so uncommon to have um, to have albums that had pretty weird selection of stuff on them. Um, but hmm. even but even then, yes, I think it was it must have been unusual. I mean, yeah. a lot of short tracks on this, and they're all short. Exactly, yeah. they're all they're all sort of uh, you know, except, radio friendly times. Except on the original vinyl, the Water Music Two, which closes the album, is six over six minutes long, uh, just oh, for Petronics right. uh, to yeah. close the album out. But yeah. yeah. 
I, and, uh, yeah, it's it's clearly a uh, a collection of uh, the variety of things that Fripp was interested in at the time and had access to in terms of uh, other musicians. I think the other mm-hmm. thing that it it sort of shows is that, or, or, or I think you, it comes across. You call it you call them carefully crafted, but I I think one thing that Robert Fripp isn't is a great composer. He's a, a very interesting band leader. Uh, he's obviously a tremendous guitarist. And he can, um, uh, he, he's been involved in the composition of some very, very interesting mm. music. But I think most of that was collaborative work. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, well, yeah. I do when I said carefully crafted, they weren't always maybe crafted by him. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um so um one of the, one of, yeah so shall we just run through some more of the tracks here yeah sure yeah disengage I, sounds like sound, hold on sounds, we haven't got there yet breathless yeah. it sounds like something oh, was sorry, left was, over from uh, red yes absolutely that sorry that's the one i wanted to go to yes yeah, yeah it just sounds like tritone stuff and everything <laughs> yeah it, it just sounds like king crimson with a little bit of the uh um with a little bit of the fripertronic sound added to it mm. Now, what's disengage? Remind me. I always uh, uh, the association of the names with the. Uh, let's, let's just check in there. So it's got the um, the rather awesome Fripertronics beginning with some um, conversation on it, uh, and then. And now again, sounds like King Crimson heavy metal type stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's got the unlike breath, uh, unlike Breathless, which is an instrumental. It's got the extraordinary vocals from Peter Hamill on it. Yeah, right? um, you got to listen to a bit of that. Were you ever a Van de Graaff? Listener, mm, no, not really. They're always, oh. Yeah, they were always yeah. one of those bands that I wanted to be a fan of, but I just couldn't tolerate the singing. Sorry, I said uh, disengage has a little bit of Fripp's mother at the beginning. Yes, apparently mm. talking about toilet training, the young Fripp's toilet training. <laughs> uh, I haven't figured out the words for that one. <clears throat> I don't think they're printed on the on the inner sleeve. Uh, but yeah, this is this has got Hamill giving it all, and again, that's one of those points where I uh, where I have to laugh a bit because it's it's it sounds like that that period where people were you know in new wave where people were emoting just as much as they could. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds a bit weird. North Star is basically albatross. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought when I listened to it. Saying we've got to mention this Fleetwood Mac connection because we forgot to talk about that when we were talking about um, uh, Veltam Drat. Uh, yeah, because I think Albatross is actually a. It's a really nice song, but. Hmm. Um, if you, if you think about it, there was a, for for some years, um, for a few decades, there was a kind of 
song, a kind of, well, not song, but there was what I would call a popular instrumental. And when I say popular here, I mean not just it sold well, but it, it was popular across demographics. Uh-huh. Right. So if you think about a song like Telstar, right, that's yes. or Apache by the Shadows or yeah. uh, things like that. Um, these were they could be hits, quite big hits. Right. Well, yeah. sell well. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't really matter, uh, you know, who, who you were. You could you could enjoy them. They got played on the radio or whatnot. Yeah. And I think I think of Albatross as being in that category as well it's sort of like it doesn't really sound like Fleetwood Mac it sort of stands apart from that and mm. has this uh kind of unique quality of being su- some uh, soundtrack to something on the on the tv yeah but it's it's really it's like um impressionist ambient music but as a popular single yeah I suppose so you know I, I like but, um in the North Star version, it yeah, it somehow it's, it's ended up sounding a, quite a bit weirder than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the lyrics here are all by uh, Joanna Walton, who I looked on uh-huh. Discogs and had a little search around. Uh, not particularly well-known in, in music. And was uh, at that time Robert Fripp's uh, girlfriend in New York. Uh-huh. And so she provided the... Uh, the lyrics here, and later died in the Lockerbie. Yes, plane bombing. Yeah, that's right. According to Discogs, anyway, it hasn't seemed to have shown up again um, after after this album. Kind of curious. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I think North Star was one of hers. Yeah, there were a number of. And the the in terms of composition again, Fripp didn't give the vocalists any melodies. They had to improvise oh, them. really? Okay. Yeah. And if you can find it, there's oh, there's so many editions of this album. Uh, I do not want to try and deal with that. And yeah. they then eventually, after many, a very long time, uh, produced a 32-CD box set of this album. <laughs> and that's, which gives you an idea of just how crazy. 32 CDs? Yeah, I believe so. Was it? Oh, Am I getting God. that wrong? But yeah, you can go and buy it off of. It's like 100 and, 170 quid. You can go and buy it off uh, to someone go on mobile website. Yeah, I, I, it, it, I'd love to take a look at it and have a read at some of the notes in there. But you know, there's there's uh, the the sort of mm. degree of super fandom that goes into uh, crim related yeah. stuff can be a bit extreme sometimes. Yeah, well, um, I mean, even now, if you if you look on the um, if you look on the Wikipedia page for this album, there's uh, there's a whole sort of spiel about uh, about which is actually the definitive version of this album. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, and it, it, it finally on. ends up by telling you to buy the 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 three the three CD version. And then you can recreate the second edition of the this by taking the taking the second disc and programming in a certain track order. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty weird. Yeah, it, it, so yeah, 
Actually, oh yes, that's right. There, there is a massive 32-disc box set. You're absolutely right. 25 compact discs, three DVD discs, and four Blu-rays. Good lord. <laughs> just just for exposure. I mean, that does give an idea of just how conceited this man can be. It's like, it's, this is just one album, and it's not his best, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, to get back to the the original story, the reason I chose this one is because the other one, the the ones that I that were so formative for me were so uh, are, are just difficult to get and were out of yeah. print for so long. So I just didn't want to make it so hard and uh, hard on people to get it stuff. Even even hard to get a hard to hard to find them on on YouTube. Uh, so if you were if you were going to tell somebody, um, oh, to get hold of this album yeah um how would you tell them to listen to it yeah, um, this one's what, on what exposure is what? on is on streaming so just do it's that. on streaming yeah okay yeah. yeah that's that's why i that's why i thought it would be a good choice uh, also because it's 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 got a number of these a number of things that that come together we've already talked about a, a few of them but it reprises some old king crimson stuff you know they, uh-huh. they're real heavy uh, stuff. It also reprises the the extremely complicated counting tunes, you know, like mm-hmm. like Breathless, for example. Uh, but it also has a couple of songs that sound like what's going to come next. So yeah. it's it's got one that sounds like the uh, the League of Gentlemen, which is one mm-hmm. of the albums that was so important to me later, and it's got one that sounds like King Crimson version four, like the Discipline. Uh, mm-hmm. era of King Crimson. Mm, yeah. And it it's all tied together by the sound of the Fripatronics, which is kind of what colors it's it's the consistent thing on that that brings this album together in a way, isn't it? because uh, you hear yeah. that all over the place here. Yeah, well he was uh he he thought of this as part of the drive to nineteen eighty one. Right. And that drive specific, well, he, he the plan that he outlined on this album was that there was going to be two more uh, albums coming out uh, uh, in the next couple of years, uh, mm-hmm. Discotronics and, and Frippertronics. And so Frippertronics would be the, uh, the, the loops, let's just call it mm-hmm. that, the, the improvised music using uh, tape delays. Uh, and then the Discotronics was take those recordings and, 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 and get a, uh, you know, bass and drums and something else maybe going along with that. That actually did happen, but it, a little different from that. So mm. we got, as the next album, we got Under Heavy Manners slash God Save the Queen, which is both the Discotronics and the Frippertronics, but on one LP. So mm-hmm. you've got Frippertronics on one side, that's God Save the Queen. And then on... The other side, under heavy manners, you've got the discotronics, which has got a couple of instrumental tracks and one with uh, with vocals on it, provided by David Byrne. Uh-huh. What would you say is the difference between frippertronics and discotronics? Well, on frippertronics is just the just the solo guitar sounds, and discotronics mm-hmm. has got a disco drums and bass. Uh huh. So okay. let's 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 put on a little bit to to make this obvious. So, for example, on the Frippertronics, uh, here's a track uh-huh. called 1983 from the album God Save the Queen. So these are guitar sounds. Uh-huh. And 
in case people don't know what this how this works it, it, they use a, a two tape machines to create a several second delay and the output of the delayed you know the delay signal when it plays back is just fed back as the input so you've got a you know ah, like an, okay. an echo kind of thing that goes on but what the repeated music comes back a little bit quieter mm. so it uh, as you as you can hear in building up the music here the older parts of the recording are going to fade away sooner going to decay yeah yeah mm-hmm. and that happens throughout this thing so this this track is actually 13 and a half minutes long and is in a sense then sort of continuously evolving through these through those 13 and a half minutes right and these would be improvised these recordings were all taken from the Friptronics tour so let's explain the Friptronics tour briefly I'm uh, no yeah or let's no I'll come back to that yes let's do it like this so okay. I just want to skip forwards a bit in this and can't listen to the whole thing because copyright yeah. stuff and whatnot let's skip forwards to So there, there were about four, four or five minutes in. So this is the kind of music that I was listening to on my Walkman back then. Completely mm-hmm. unexpected. You know, when I first put on one, when I bought and listened to Let the Power Fall, I thought I might be getting something a bit like King Crimson, but I got this instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it goes on. It's just amazing. There we are. And here, getting towards the end of the thing, this is... Th- about 12 minutes into the 13 and a half. So that's what Frippertronics sounds like. Now, Discotronics mm-hmm. you had asked about. Let's see if I can uh, demonstrate that. The next track here, Under Heavy Manners, this is the one that's got David Byrne doing the vocals on it. Uh, sounds like this. So it's got the Frippertronics. So you take that Frippertronics mm-hmm. track and then just give it a mm-hmm. uh, you know disco bass and drums. So you get the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so fr- Discotronics is just fr- those Frippertronics loops, but with, uh, you know, put together with, you know, a pop, you know, a disco song. Uh-huh. So about the Frippertronics tour, these loops. Yeah. So we- hold, hold on. We've, we've made the album. We've made yeah. Exposure. Yeah. And then 
so was the Frippertronics tour in any way to promote that album? It's exactly what it's for. Uh, E.g. Wow, that has got to be one of the weirdest <laughs> ways of promoting an album. Yes, but this it's going is... out and playing music that's not on the album at all <laughs> in churches to an audience of forty people. Yes, <laughs> there's a uh, yeah. The story of this is actually pretty interesting and and really inspiring to me, and it's still like super important for me. Yeah, but the um, E.g. Uh, the record company. Uh, gave a ridiculously small budget for uh, promoting the album. And the way it worked, and it may be still true today, I don't know. No, it's, I think it's different now. But the way it worked back then is uh, you you made a record and then you went on tour to promote selling the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the, this, this ridiculously small budget that was allocated, uh, Fripp decided to to take an entirely different approach. Uh, huh. To it, which is the Frippertronics tour that was in that started in 1979. It was 79, and it was a lot of dates. So yes, yeah. he took the Frippertronics rig, which is the uh, the two uh, two t- reel-to-reel tape machines, yeah. uh, a pedal board, amplifier, guitar. And he had a driver. I think we managed to find. I think I managed to find some film of him actually doing it. There's yes, the, he he actually got yeah. a little appearance on TV. Right. Yeah. Well, you can Which is, see well, I'll stick that on the Substack page yeah. because that's uh, the, if you actually see how he's doing it physically, it's, it's quite yes, interesting. It, it's unfortunate there doesn't seem to be any video of him building up the loops. So the other part that's important here is that he he didn't go to any conventional music venues. Uh, certainly not for rock music, but uh, only for small audiences. I think the, the, the maximum size of the audience he played for on that tour is about 250 people. Uh, but it was uh, as low as a couple of dozen, I think. Mm. And most of them, people didn't have to pay to get in. Mm. And then he had some procedures to try and get people ready for the fact that they're not going to hear anything like King Crimson or anything mm-hmm. like the Exposure album. One of them was to talk to the audience before he played. And I think this is where he developed this this thing of having the, the repartee and the witty stuff and, and question-answer stuff that he still uses mm-hmm. to this day. Uh, and the other technique he used was be uh, start playing before anybody comes in. So they'd already have, uh, they'd already be hearing it as mm-hmm. soon as they come in. So you don't have this shock of, Expect, there's the expectation with the audience ready, and then he starts playing the wrong stuff. Um, mm. But I, I enormously respect this approach uh, because scale, as we've talked about so often on the podcast, scale is is uh, changes the dynamic in the room so much. Uh, oh, if yeah. you've got an audience of let's say fifty or a hundred people, uh, and if they're actually engaged in what you're doing then it's a collective activity. You've got, yes. you've got a musician and you've got an audience. There's a distinction, sure. But they are, they're part of it. And uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they've got some responsibility. In, yeah, they, they have a contribution to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, and the experience is, again, very different from these forms of objectified music, the most complete of which is, of course, if you buy a record. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also uh, it can be like this with with concert music where uh, you know the the the, or, the the orchestra is very strictly following a score and a mm. um, and a conductor and also in 
uh, big stadium performances. You know, when the scale yeah. is big enough, you know, the, the that you're so distant. It's it's some kind of weird yes. spec, d- remote spectator sport. Uh, yeah. It's just not like that. I, I I have this. I if if I could do a kind of um, solo improvised mm. performance, that would be the form it would take. Uh, would be small yeah. audiences and uh, and loops or something like that to do. Not just. Yeah. I think. I'm well, I mean, he certainly set off a lot of other people down the same road, didn't he? The the whole business with loops. This was, uh, you know, a few years later. You any kind of gig you went to, there would always be somebody on his own with a guitar, doing and a whole load of foot pedals setting up loops. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, and I was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and 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 you know the the most memorable, wonderful um, musical experience. I you certainly of uh, me performing solo was was doing something like that, um, mm. and it, you know it was, it was a glorious thing. Um, there, there's two parts to this though. So there's building up the loop. We heard that a couple of times there, where you know you got this uh-huh. an empty, essentially a kind of an empty memory machine. Yeah, that is going to slowly forget what you've put into it. So you can build up some music with this memory machine and get uh, and and do that improvisation. But yeah. if you're doing it with not actually a loop machine, what he did use was two tape machines. So you record on the first tape machine, and then there's some slack, and you know, and the and then the tape. Well, it's actually not slack. You have to avoid. He's got to get just mm. the right tension, I think. And then the second machine plays back what was recorded on the first machine. And then you just take that signal mm-hmm. and put that, mix that together with the guitar signal. And the result of this is that the, or one result, a byproduct of it, is that the the performance, the building up of the uh, of the performance is recorded. So you can mm. rewind that tape. And you've got, well, that was today's performance. You've got a recording of it. And what he did sometimes, I think not always, but usually, was rewind the tape, put it onto the first Revox, and play back what he's just played, and now play guitar solos on top of it. Wow. Okay. Right. And this, however, wasn't recorded. Ah. Except. We'll come to the except, though. So... If I understand right, the album that I just played from here, Under Heavy Manners, God Save the Queen, but also the album Let the Power Fall, Mm. if I understand right, all of those pieces of music were those recordings that were made on the Fripertronics tour. Ah, right. Okay. So when he went out to promote the Exposure album, trying to sell some records, you know, Mm. and was playing these things in these various locations at, at sort of unusual times of days, like record stores and, um, mm. you know, and offices and cafeterias and uh, church and whatnot. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that music that I heard on those albums later in sort of right. roughly 1983-4. That, yes, that's, that came from that tour. Um, but it was taken from the, the tape machines that he was using, so it doesn't sound live. You don't hear an audience. It's got a very, you know, good quality sound. Uh, it just doesn't sound live. And what's missing, however, is the guitar solos. Uh, 
So mm-hmm. when I I didn't know anything about them until I until I came to Boston and met uh, a couple of people that actually went to those those shows. Wow. And and they said, yeah, it was it was very cool. I like the records, but you know, you should have been there too because he would uh, he would rewind the uh-huh. tape and, and solo over it, and, you know. And he was sounding like Robert Fripp from King Crimson doing all his pyrotechnic guitar solos and everything. And then, wow. So when Under Heavy Manners and when uh, Let the Power Fall got reissued recently on CD, mm-hmm. I noticed that there was another CD there that I I didn't know anything about called Washington Square Church. And uh, so it turns out that at, that with the one exception, this is the except that I mentioned earlier, uh, mm. with one exception at these, uh, he did it like um, four shows or something at Washington Square Church. And the engineer that was helping him out there mm. noticed that he wasn't using the second tape machine during the rewind phase. So well, then you uh-huh. would just use one tape machine to play back the loop that had just been the loop. What right. they called it? That had just been. Um, so he just put a blank machine on the second machine a and blank used tape it to, on the on the second machine. Yeah, and used exactly. it to record the solos. And right. this turned. Uh, so, but then you've got a recording of the solo, but it doesn't have the loop with it. Oh. Right. So these got actually sorted out. So this became, uh, the, you know, the um, in the great vaults at uh, Discipline Global Mobile, uh, they, they had an attempt to try and sort this out. And it was just really complicated. Uh, but they did actually manage to sort them out because a guitar's pickups are slightly microphonic. So if you amplify the uh, the sound, if you amplify the sound on the solo recordings loud enough, and protect your ears from when the boops come in. Uh, uh, you uh, you can oh, sorry from when the uh, the guitar solos come in. You can actually hear the loop very very faintly. So they did manage to match them to the record the recordings and synchronize them. And that's what you've got on the Washington Square Church CD. Wow! So that's actually a really important. Um, that's a really important release for me because while there are lots of bootlegs. Uh, of what Fripp, uh, you know, of, of these uh, of these gigs, and some of them, many, I think, all of the bootlegs eventually ended up getting released by uh, DGM. Inevitably, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and and you paid, you still pay full price for them. <laughs> and mm. I, I bought a couple of them, but the sound qualities, I bought them many many years ago, but the sound quality is a bit poor. But this uh, this Washington Square Church one is very satisfying to listen to, uh, mm. and there's some some really really surprising guitar solos on them. Uh, oh, so yeah. that's that's very very cool as well. Uh, so that sort of completes the uh, an in- interesting picture for me because I. You know, I, this kid, the 17-year-old that bought the Let the Power Fall CD and listened to that back, way back then, 40 years ago, had no idea of all this story that I've just related to you about the Exposure yeah. album, which I didn't know about, about the uh, the tour, about the nature of Frippertronics, about the, the solos, which I didn't even know about for another 20, 20 plus yeah. years, and then didn't even get to hear to it until much later, and now only... Very yeah. recently, do we have a decent album, you know, decent quality album of it? Gosh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the one of the whole points of this podcast is to uh, is to help people to navigate uh, some uh, some areas where there's where there's just too much information. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, so that's an interesting one. And of course, the next thing that really happened was uh, was uh, eventually we did arrive at 1981 and King Crimson's Discipline. Yeah, there was, however, a band in between. Oh, yes, of course. There was the League of Gentlemen. The League of Gentlemen, yeah. Yeah, which I really like. That unf- that album, unfortunately, has not been properly re-released. It is... Ah. There's a rather poor quality uh, version of it available on, on YouTube. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to last there. But mm. the, the album did get reissued on CD and LP, but mm-hmm. in a in reformatted version. It's basically the Discotronics album. Let's see if I can find it here. Oh. It's got the same artwork on it, but the the original album has the artwork oh. covering the whole of it. Ah, okay. And then um, they've set it in with a big border. This is just a little square set in the middle of a right. white border, yeah. And this has got the this has got the studio recordings of the of the band uh tracks on it with of which there are only six. Mm-hmm. And it's got the Discotronics side of Under Heavy Manners. So that, right. that, that's that Discotronics we just heard, plus a couple of other of those tracks. Uh-huh. So it's like your Discotronics. But the, but the original um, League of Gentlemen album has some other rather interesting stuff on it, including these indiscreet tracks, which have got, they've got excerpts of J.G. Bennett's addresses. Mm-hmm. They have recordings from that, but also some other... Uh, interview stuff, which is sort of a bit amusing, but for me was that was always part of that album. Uh, so losing that, but there are also a couple of organ solos on it. So the the uh, the organ player, uh, what's his name here, was the guy from XTC. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, see, I've, oh, I should know this. I should just know this, shouldn't I? Of course, I should just know this. Uh, yeah, Barry Andrews, mm-hmm. um, and he's really good. Uh, let's see if we can find just a little bit of this, because I want... Yeah, so there's two tracks on here called Pareto Optimum, which is a reference to the to something in statistics. Quickly, a little bit of the Pareto Optimum to give you a sound. I'd... So it sounds to me like uh, uh, Fripp got... Uh, Andrews to connect his organ up to the uh, up to the Fripatronics machine. Mm-hmm. So there's two tracks like that, which are pretty cool. Uh-huh. And there's a track on there called "Dislocated," which is actually the source source the inspiration for a, uh, a composition exercise of my own. But you don't want to listen to that just now. Uh, but yeah, this I, I love this album very, very, very much. Um, so, sounds for example like this. Later, you know, they'll 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 actually have some solos as well. And he took the, took this band on tour. Uh, I think they did about four months of touring. Uh, there's lots of 
Lots of uh, bootlegs of that available as well. I've got a couple of those too. So that was the League of Gentlemen, which I think is an important step towards um, discipline. Yeah, yeah, it's starting to sound a bit more like that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes, except obviously, uh, King Crimson version four is the first King Crimson that's got two guitars in it, and that changes oh, everything, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. So it is kind of interesting how all of these elements come together. Uh, during uh, the hiatus between, you know, the end of the, the end of Red. Yeah. And then the reforming with Discipline. And uh, it's interesting because you can actually trace back all of these things to elements that had, had wandered across uh, uh, Robert Fripp's transom in a way, <laughs> you know. Like uh, well, uh, things like the uh, the the style of of Talking Heads, for instance, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. had played played a part in the sound. Um, you've got all of the uh, all of the sort of found object bits of vocals in uh, and uh, vocal recordings and, the, you and know, stuff the, like that, which uh, then ends up turning up in in the track. Thelahun Jinji, where somebody's yeah, actually example, reading yeah. out a, a letter that they'd written to their wife yeah. as the vocals. Yes. Well, I mean, the the uh, the lack of composition of any of the vocals, uh, Adrian Ballou yeah. had to um, had to figure that all out after the fact. So he he composed most of the uh, the lyrics and and the and you know, had to, had to choose a melody for it. He was just given right here. You go sing. Mm-hmm. Which was how it was done on on exposure too. I mean, he would just give the yeah. vocalist a lyric sheet. By the way, on exposure, we kind of stopped reviewing it there. There's a on streaming. You should be able to find a uh, an extra uh, version uh-huh. of Mary, uh, an oh, alternative yeah. ve- take, which is in fact the version with uh, Daryl Hall singing. Ah, okay. And Daryl Hall was not given a melody. He had to come up with that or improvise it or whatever mm-hmm. and then when terry roach sang it because she had, had to get, get a new mm-hmm. singer for it he she copied uh what uh, what daryl hall had sung so that's a, it's it's very cool how that oh, fits yeah. together um so that beautiful a melody uh that uh that terry roach sings on that version uh that was um that was hall's yeah but um also, just just the way that uh, the way that it that the new version of King Crimson engages with uh, commercial music. Yes, in a way, there's a um, in in the opening of chapter nine in Eric Tam's book. Uh, he's got this, I thought, really wonderful breakdown. This is a, a Fripp thing, where Fripp, after having done the League of Gentlemen, was a bit disappointed about the difficulty of having to deal with you know relative modest sized clubs and drunks um uh-huh. who were you know a bit too close to the stage and you know what yeah. it's like and, and it's basically dealing dealing with kind of pub type uh venues so he ever the, ever so i'll just read this i think i like it so much um Ever fond of systematizing lists, Fripp saw three qualitatively different kinds of music making. Third division, 
Uh-huh. Artistic research and development, a civilized style of life and little or no financial remuneration, where ideas and art exist and are experimented with for their own sake. You know, I'm hands <laughs> up here. That's me. <laughs> Second division, gainful employment as a working professional musician, respectability and a certain level of commercial success, but little impact on mass culture. You won't change the world. First division. Exposure at the level of mass media with all its rewards and risks. For better or for worse, you become a mythical figure on the screen of contemporary consciousness. Access to the best musicians and to all current ideas, musical trends and technologies. Total commitment of belief, energy, lifestyle and time. That's wow. uh, that's the way Fripp described these three divisions, which I, I love as a, as a way of describing things. If you're going yeah. into popular music at the first division, it does make sense. It is a mm. huge commitment. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's very uh, clear. I wish I wish we could all wear uniforms. The medals that would show which division you're in. <laughs> yeah, but the uh, <laughs> or which club you belong to. Yeah, uh, but the. The, um, you know, uh, the League of Gentlemen was the second division uh, mm-hmm. uh, team. And uh, Fripp decided, no, he wants, he wants to move forward with a first division team. Mm. And, and, and went and did it, yes. Yeah. Gone are the Frippertronics, though. Because he was using Frippertronics a bit with the, um, with the League of Gentlemen. Uh-huh. And uh, throughout exposure. Uh, yeah. In, in, in King Crimson version 4, you've got the, uh, the multi-guitar stuff going on. Uh-huh. It's, it's almost like three guitars because on the, on the stick, yeah. Tony Levin is often sort of contributing to that sort of guitar orchestra yeah. sound. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think that had something to do with the fact that the, uh, that the technology had moved on? Not necessarily. I think they could have done... I mean, it would have sounded different. Yes, I mean they've, uh-huh. the 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 situation in in the eighties with effects pedals was much more advanced than ten years prior. Yeah, uh, but no, I think it could have been a, uh, a, a you know a largely sort of acoustic electric band mm-hmm. from ten years. That's ago. true. I mean, I, I still remember uh, drum machines with made up of tape loops. Yeah, but I mean they didn't. Know, they used a real drums. Quite drummer. a while. Yeah. Yes. No. But I mean, just as an example, yeah. you know that that went on for quite a while in the eighties. Yes. Yeah. And why not? I guess. Yeah. I mean, drum machines were. Uh, yeah. Well, they were expensive at first, weren't they? And it, yeah, that was a process through the eighties, wasn't it? Sort of democratizing of all of that stuff. Why do I call it democratizing? This the the costs coming down, and there being mm. more more models to choose from. It's really what I meant. So exposure uh, then is uh, certainly very much a product of its time. Absolutely, I, that's one of the reasons why I like it now. Mm. Is yes the way that it it puts so much of 1979 into one mm. relatively short album. It's what 35 minutes total, something like uh, that. I think 45. Okay, in it's in its entirety, but. Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, there's little bits of uh, of things that are going to turn up in in ambient music yep. later on. Although that uh, had, that had already appeared, oh, that yes, the Frippanino albums. Yeah. 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 Um, 
there's uh, there's there's things that were going to influence popular music or had been influenced by popular music. There was uh, you know nods towards King Crimson's uh, previous and Absolutely. still to come. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it does. Uh, it it is it is a very interesting album from that point of view. Yeah, and having having a, a, a variety of singers on it uh, kind of makes it more interesting as well. And then you've got this to close the album. This completely surprising. I mean, yeah. Uh, when I dug it out again to listen to it again, because I thought you know it's too difficult to do these 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 more obscure Fripp albums. So let's choose this one. And then mm. on side two, halfway through, it it just kind mm. of. Everything changes, and you've got this combination of the water music one. The water music one. And then um, here comes the flood, oh. and water music two, and they just flow one into the other. Yes, uh, yeah. And the, uh, you know, the here comes the flood here is way better than on the, uh, on the original Peter Gabriel album. Uh, oh. You know, it doesn't have yeah. all that prog rock going on. Um, yeah. And it's really scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's an emotional and very scary song. Um, yeah. I think that we were having all those conversations back then, and we've done fucking nothing about it. Yeah. Well, uh, the other bit of listening I did, uh, prepared, preparing for this was, um, uh, it's, it's interesting. I was uh, having a conversation with, uh, with somebody backstage. Uh, a violinist friend of mine who just asked me how's your podcast going and I said oh we're going to be doing some some Robert Fripp and he immediately said uh, oh my god Beat mm-hmm. I love that album so yeah. much yeah and I uh, it, I I think it's uh, it well it it suffers kind of from coming after discipline. Yes, it does because discipline was so good and so Surprising it doesn't sound too. quite as good. Yeah. And, but it's a uh, it, it is a better album than I remembered. And I dug that out, and the opening track of that is absolutely magnificent. Yeah, yeah, it's got its good moments. Um, yeah, the, there's definitely a bit of a decline through those three albums. The three of a perfect pair is a little worse as well. I think I think Fripp wasn't entirely satisfied with that one too. Yeah, but uh, but certainly the opening track of Beat is uh, is actually I think it's it's up there with anything they did. Yeah, I really love it. Yeah, let's go and check that one out because I'm not sure. But. Yeah, that's absolutely marvellous. That's that is a, a perfectly perfect musical uh, like version of the experience of opening on the road. What do you mean, opening on the road? Well, of opening the book on the road. All oh, right, I see. Yes, 
<laughs> there could have been other there could have been other interpretations of that. I was thinking like you know oh you mean opening a gig? You know, you're on the road and you're it's the first song, it's your opener for the for no, all right, fine. No, the uh the just this this sort of uh well um you know, the whole the fact the whole lands the the whole manuscript was one complete roll with no pauses. It has that sort of that that sound that it's it's just it's not going to stop that song. Yeah. Yes. I, well, a lot of the a lot of these starting with discipline and going onwards and uh, um, have you know where he's got these bigger and bigger guitar orchestras, especially you know uh-huh. with the guitar craft stuff. Is you've got these divide the, the orchestra up into groups that are playing uh, patterns that don't repeat for quite a long time, you know, for, for yeah. everything to come back together again. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, maybe a minute or something. It's good. So you've got this feeling of things moving along, but mm. static at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, one of the things about, uh, about on the road is that these uh, these guys uh, are moving through America, moving through this country, kind of in the opposite direction as everybody else, and driven by this by this uh, by this urge to to go on and to travel and to move, but completely in the opposite direction from all of these uh, from the rest of America, which has this urge to sort of you know get on in life and uh, and. You know, you know, save money and build a house and everything, mm. and they're they're tr- they're trying to go out and seize life by the throat and have experiences. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah. Oh God, what? I don't know. I've gone on too long. No, but we should uh, we should maybe close off by by looking at one of um, one of Fripp's other uh, collaborations from the uh, from the period between the two King Crimsons. Yeah. And uh, you suggested this, uh, the um, the Bowie Scary Monsters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guitar solo <laughs> on, on on Scary Monsters is 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 stunning. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was wondering where you're going to go with that. Maybe you're going to talk about how um, one of the songs that didn't make it onto this album, but you can actually find a recording of it, is oh. uh, um, is where he was playing with Blondie. Um, I feel love, the Donna Summer song. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty cool as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I, but, uh, it's my my favorite disco song of all time, by the way. Yeah, I love it. But um, yeah, no, I, I kind of kind of want to hear Scary Monsters now because uh, I actually I didn't listen to to rock music for a long time as a teenager. Um, you know, so I was just listening to jazz, but. Uh, then two things happened. Uh, the whole thing with uh, with Paul joining Delamitri happened, and uh, then I got a got a, a, a really cool girlfriend who liked Bowie, mm-hmm. and she made me listen to this album amongst other things. You know, I mean, you remember the, those times when you used to actually, uh, if you liked a girl, you'd make her a mixtape. Yes. You know, and it was it was, <laughs> it was, was all Charlie Parker, like, was it? <laughs> yeah, well, no, but uh, it was it was a sort of interesting combination because it was it was a sort of declaration of love and a sort of challenge at the same time. You know, are you actually hip enough for all of this? Well, you know, if a girl, <laughs> if, a girl if a girl's into Bowie, you know, I don't know how successful but, uh, that's going to be. Well, the thing was that this got reversed because she made me a mixtape. 
And this was one of the things on it. Scary Monsters. Scary Monsters, right. yeah. yeah. I'm not going to quit until we've done the full guitar solo. Oh, right. Well, fair enough. But, but it's... It, we haven't really talked about how, what a remarkable guitarist Fripp is himself. That's uh, yeah. maybe for another day. But isn't it interesting how, you know, like one or two notes and you know who you're listening to? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. such a distinctive sound. I mean, who, who else could possibly have come remotely close to playing a guitar solo like that? It's yeah. Just, there's, yeah. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Um, but yeah, so you've got some yeah. of... The, not actually that stuff on the Washington Square thing. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff that was like in the opening of that song. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for reminding me to play that. There it is. <laughs> so I'm going to put the recorder off now. <laughs> 